I have found out beat news in depth for you. Good evening and welcome to Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, it's a new year and the time when we all set resolutions and goals for what we hope to accomplish over the next 12 months. Now, before the holidays, we shared a story on Outbeat News about how most LGBT couples are seriously unprepared for retirement. And unlike our straight friends, most LGBT couples won't have children to take care of them when the money runs out. So no matter what age you are, a great resolution to set for this year is to start a retirement plan. Our first guest tonight will help with some great advice. And then in the second half of the hour, we're following up on another story we shared from I'mFromDriftwood.com. Moses Lassiter's video about racism within the LGBT community went viral last month, and he's here tonight to share his thoughts with all of us. All of this is coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, January 25th, 2015. I have found Outbeat Radio News. Your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. The U.S. Supreme Court announced last week that it will hear an appeal on the bans on same-sex marriage currently in place and recently upheld by the Circuit Court of Appeals for the states of Kentucky, Michigan, Ohio, and Tennessee. The case will be argued in front of the justices in April, and a decision is expected in late June. Same-sex couples can currently marry in 37 of the 50 states, the most recent state of which is Alabama just last week. And if justices rule in favor of marriage, same-sex marriage could become the law of the land in every state. President Obama voiced his support for same-sex marriage on Tuesday in his sixth State of the Union address. I've seen something like gay marriage go from a wedge issue used to drive us apart to a story of freedom across our country, a civil right now legal in states that seven in ten Americans call home. The president spoke to LGBT issues three different times during the speech and became the very first president in history to talk specifically about bisexuals and transgender people in a State of the Union address. There's one last pillar of our leadership, and that's the example of our values. As Americans, we respect human dignity even when we're threatened, which is why I have prohibited torture and worked to make sure our use of new technology like drones is properly constrained. It's why we speak out against the deplorable anti-Semitism that has resurfaced in certain parts of the world. It's why we continue to reject offensive stereotypes of Muslims, the vast majority of whom share our commitment to peace. That's why we defend free speech and advocate for political prisoners and condemn the persecution of women or religious minorities, or people who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. We do these things not only because they are the right thing to do, but because ultimately they will make us safer. And if you thought it was unlikely that in 2015, just one year after passing an LGBT non-discrimination law, that a body of elected officials would vote to eliminate protections for LGBT people, think again. It happened this week in Starkville, Mississippi. Starkville became the first city in the United States to pass a resolution recognizing the dignity of LGBT citizens just one year ago. However, instead of celebrating the anniversary of this historic resolution, the city's LGBT community is reeling this week from a decision to undo it that occurred last Tuesday night. 
As expected, the board voted 5-2 to two to override Mayor Park Wiseman's veto of its previous vote to repeal a pro-LGBT resolution. The votes came hours after public comment from dozens of speakers, most of whom expressed support for pro-LGBT policies. The LGBT community also staged a rally and launched an online campaign. Ultimately, the board's decision to override the mayor's veto won't have much practical impact as no employees are signed up for domestic partner benefits. Assuming that the U.S. Supreme Court makes marriage equality the law of the land in June, gay employees in Starkville will be eligible for spousal benefits anyway. Now here's your calendar of events for the coming week. On Monday, January 26th and every Monday at 5.30 p.m., the Petaluma Health Center will host an LGBT support group at 1179 North McDowell Boulevard in Petaluma. And also on Monday at 5.30 p.m., the Marin AIDS Project will host their monthly mixer at the Sheraton Four Points in San Rafael. And on Tuesday, January 27th at 1.30 p.m., the Santa Rosa Senior Group will gather at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation at the Glacier Center. And on Wednesday, January 28th at 5 p.m., Spectrum's Youth Support Group will gather at the Spectrum Center, 30 North San Pedro Road in San Rafael. For more information about LGBT events happening here in the North Bay, go to GaySonoma.com. And for all of your latest LGBT news headlines, go to our website at OutBeatNews.com. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter for updates from OutBeat Radio News all week long. For Gary Carnavelli, I'm Greg Moralia. OutBeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. Last year, Tony and I decided to put together a financial plan for our own retirement, which is where I met our first guest, Vince Lamarca. He's a financial planner from Valak, and he really helped us think through a comprehensive plan for our future. So when I saw the story late last fall about same-sex couples being unprepared for retirement, I thought immediately of Vince and thought he would be perfect to have on our show. So Vince, welcome. Thanks. Uh, it's great to be here. I appreciate it, Greg. And we appreciate your time. Uh, before we get into talking about the exciting topic of retirement, uh, why don't you start out by telling us a little bit about you and a little bit about your background in financial planning? Uh, well, you know, I, I came into this industry at, at the most interesting of times in, uh, at the end of 2006, uh, uh, right before the, the major financial crisis. So it, it was a heck of a time to, to really, uh, I guess, get your feet wet. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been, since then I've been, I've been with Valak Financial Advisors since, uh, December of 2006, helping people plan for, uh, retirement and, and hopefully enjoying that retirement as well. One of our, that's really our main focus as a company. We work with a lot of folks who, in the healthcare sector, in the educational fields and in nonprofits with group retirement plans, but we work with people individually as well beyond that. Um, so, you know, we're pretty much retirement focused, I guess you would say. You know, I remember when I was in my 20s, retirement seemed like such a, a long time uh, ahead, and it wasn't really even anything I was really consciously thinking about. You know, my, my parents certainly talked a lot about it and always said you should save for a rainy day and save for retirement. But, you know, for a person in today's work world, at what age should you start getting serious about planning for retirement? Uh, you know, I, I think I think it should start the earlier the better. I, I think it really needs to initiate as soon as possible. I have two young kids, a 15 year old and a 12 year old, and uh, I intend from them for them to begin uh, retirement savings as soon as uh, they're able to take part in a plan um, of their own doing. So, to me, 18 years old, whatever it might be, you should be you should be saving for retirement. As to when you you know how elaborate it becomes, that that level of sophistication sort of grows over time. Um, 
you know, somebody in their 20s, uh, if they're single or they're married, it's going to depend. But, you know, for single folks uh, or married folks, either way, I really think you're looking at sort of assessing your budgetary needs, but recognizing the need to save for retirement within that. Mm-hmm. A lot of times people really make that something that's secondary in importance and it's equivalent with anything else. You've really got to pay yourself. Um, and, and people need to increase savings rates. Uh, I think there is a tendency for people to not really uh, understand that they, how much they need to accumulate in order to have a comfortable retirement. So, you know, um, again, it can vary based upon single or married, uh, but without a doubt, it needs to be something that's addressed early on and, uh, and, and made part of, uh, part of your general budgetary plan. Mm-hmm. And I know that when I was younger, I always made the assumption that Social Security was going to be there. You know, that was what I was paying into every month. I certainly noticed the deduction. Uh, how reliable is Social Security in terms of what people can expect in retirement these days? You know, Social Security is not a plan. I have this conversation with folks a lot of times, and unfortunately, it's become the plan for a lot of people um, through lack of savings. They're, they're dependent upon that as their, their primary source. And it is a source of income, and it can't be denied. But in general, the rule of thumb is that Social Security is going to deal with maybe 20% of your, re, of your mm. pre-retirement income. Not going to really address most of your needs. Most financial uh, planners or people in the industry are going to recommend 80 to 90% of your pre-retirement income as to what you should be shooting for in order to maintain your lifestyle or maintain any lifestyle that you want it that's desirable. So, you know, there's a significant gap in between Social Security and the 80 or 90%, and that needs to be addressed. That said, you know, when you look at Social Security, uh, how you deal with it is important. Um, It's very important to wait if you can. Um, You know, more and more people are recognizing that. Um, If if you initiate a draw at age 62 versus age 70, every year that you wait, you're looking at an 8% bump. It's definitely worth it to wait if you can afford to do so. And everybody's situation is very different. Um, Most people will, uh, you know, often, well, not most people, but a lot of people will want to get that bird in the hand. Mm -hmm. And, And that's understandable. But the return on waiting is there if longevity is an issue. And longevity is an issue for people more and more. And that needs to be recognized. So, you know, waiting is critical. And then I think it's also important to understand the importance of of strategizing and maximizing Social Security benefits. Um, With respect to the LGBT community, things changed quite a bit. Uh, when well, they uh, sure did. Yeah, in in uh, June of 2013, when DOMA got ruled unconstitutional, um, it changed things dramatically. And so now you have a whole segment of the population that has eligibility for uh, supplemental uh, income that they may not have had eligibility before. And so I encourage uh, people to investigate that, you know, LGBT couples, to make sure that they understand how those things can work. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a variety of ways that those benefits can be maximized. Um, waiting is one of them. Um, piggybacking is a, is a strategy that sometimes people recommend. And, uh, and also, um, you know, a, a file and suspend approach. And those are things that I could talk about a little bit, but, you know, normally that takes a little bit more of a conversation. Right. Um, we utilize Social Security maximization programs in order to try to say, okay, what's the best thing we can do within the totality of a person's financial situation? Uh, in order to give the best recommendation, but it's important to understand how the system works and, and to take advantage of the, the you know those strategies. So the key is to plan to draw later, not sooner. 
Without a doubt. Security. I mean, if health is an issue, I think that you, you, know, you can take that into consideration. If somebody knows that they have poor health and, and that longevity is not an issue, then that's, you know, that, that's, that's a scenario where maybe an early draw makes more sense. Mm-hmm. But um, in general, if somebody begins drawing at age 62 um, uh, versus somebody who's drawing at age uh, 66, full retirement age, by waiting for those four years, um, they may have received that money, but the return on that wait is pretty quick. So, uh, and, and even if going all the way to age 70, um, you're looking at a significant difference in, in the draw rate and the return on it is there given longevity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not as if, you know, we're working for social security, trying to get people not to draw mm-hmm. those assets. Um, we're just trying to get people to plan for, uh, the issue of longevity, which is again, a, an increasing issue when it comes to retirement planning. Right. Well, and you mentioned LGBT couples, uh, certainly now that we have all of the federal marriage rights, um, and entitlements that come along with that. But one of the differences, I think, for the average couple is uh, not having kids. Uh, certainly there are couples that do have kids, but there are many more that don't. Talk about retirement planning from a perspective of, of two people who don't have kids that will be around to take care of them. It's a, it's a, it's a big difference in a couple ways. Um, one of the major discussions that you'll have sometimes, and it may not be that major, depends upon the couple, is, is legacy planning. And a couple that has children, they may have a desire to go ahead and ensure that certain assets are preserved for the kids. Um, and that could apply to an LGBT couple just as much as, as, as a heterosexual couple, you know, that, without a doubt. But if there are no kids in the equation, that may not be a big, uh, a big factor. I mean, honestly, when I work with folks who are retired, I encourage them to spend money they've saved. I mean, I, I tell them, hey, I want you to your last check to bounce and I want it to, uh, you know, be for your own <laughs> funeral. So the idea is that there's a reason why you save the money. Right. Um, but, uh, if kids aren't in the equation, the biggest concern I think you have there is a long-term care need because mm-hmm. kids can sometimes help fill that gap. And, and that's where I think long-term care insurance planning becomes really critical for folks who don't have children. Um, so that they, you know, they know that there's going to be assets available in order to help uh, bring in the care that might be needed. Because the financial, emotional, and psychological toll that it can take sure. on one person can be pretty brutal. Sure. So. Well, I don't think anybody really wants to go into retirement knowing full well that they're going to burden their kids. Well, maybe there's some parents that do. <laughs> but I think by and large, you know, we're, parents want to try to make it better for their kids. And so... You know, trying to avoid that burden, I think, would be desirable. Talk a little bit about what long-term care insurance is. Well, you know, LTC, I'm, I'm going to give you sort of the, uh, the textbook definition here because okay. it's easier. But essentially, it provides a bucket of money for daily or monthly benefit to provide hands-on assistance for an individual who has suffered either cognitive or physical impairment mm. leading to a chronic condition. So, uh, and, and, a, and this is really defined by, again, cognitive impairment which people will often oftentimes associate with dementia or Alzheimer's or something of that nature mm-hmm. or stroke leading to cognitive impairment. Um, and physical impairment is defined as an ability to perform two out of six ADLs or activities of daily living. So, you know, ability to, to eat, bathe, dress, toilet, walk, um, continence issues that might exist without having hands-on assistance. What long-term care insurance does is it provides a bucket of money so that hands-on assistance can be provided. Because to be quite frank, nothing will deplete assets more rapidly than not having that, if you, if you do not have LTC oh, insurance. I bet. I, bet. Um, I think on average in Northern California, the cost to have that, that level of care can be anywhere from seven to $8,000 a month. Wow. 
Um, and so, you know, long-term care insurance is designed to help mitigate that risk. And, and I think it should be part of any plan. Uh, um, it's just a question of, of to what degree. If it's affordable, it should be there. So how much does an insurance policy like that typically cost? Let's say I'm 45 years old and I'm thinking about long-term care insurance. Well, just to piggyback on what you said, I mean, I, I, before I go to that, mm-hmm. I, 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 that's exactly the issue is we are living such long lives and either our minds give out or our bodies give out, but it, they don't go give out together. Right. Um, so, and that's really where, where that need arises. You know, the, the prices can vary for long-term care insurance. It depends upon the level of benefit. It depends upon the health of the of the individual, um, and, and there are other things that can factor into it, such as what's referred to as an elimination period, or you know other other things that that, mm-hmm. we, that we look at when when we evaluate um, long term care costs. But uh, you know, if I were going to be giving a ballpark figure for a, say a forty five year old, um, you know, I think uh, with if they're unmarried which is a, a critical factor. Um, married couples um, buying LTC together through some carriers can get a 25% discount. That can be significant. Mm-hmm. Um, but if somebody's just looking for a policy unto themselves as a 45-year-old, I'd say expect maybe $300 to $400 a month for a long-term care mm-hmm. insurance policy. Profitably cheaper. You know, again, it, it, I, I don't like to give quotes out, you know, uh, in right. the, uh, just out of the blue. But, sure. But, but, a, but a ballpark. I mean, it's not cheap. I guess no, no, it's not line. cheap. You know, probably closer to three. But again, I, that's where, you know, working with individuals. You really want to look at their, own, their the situa- situation in terms of underwriting. Um, and, and in best case scenario, they find a, a, a less expensive option. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, a lot of times people will... will really struggle with paying for premiums for life for long-term care insurance. And, right. and it's understandable. I just, you know, the, the consequence of not doing it is so much more expensive than doing it. And pay now or pay later. Exactly. And pay when you pay later, later, it's, it's sure, a lot more. It's a lot. Yeah. So what about life insurance? Is that really still a good viable an important investment for couples today? I, I believe it strongly in life insurance in, as a source of protection as for couples, especially couples with children. If kids are in the equation, it's, it's a definite. If they're not in the equation, then it's a question of who's got the greater earnings and how are you trying to protect each other in that respect? Um, you know, uh, I, I, again, that, that relationship can vary quite a bit. But if, if I tackle first the situation of a couple with children, You've got to imagine a situation where uh, one person passes and the next day, how does this person deal with all the debt that they might have um, Mm -hmm. paying off the mortgage? Um, Can they survive on a single income? And if they can't, then that needs to be figured out. Um, If kids aren't in the equation, you know, who is the greater earner? Um, Is the other person dependent upon that person? Um, and, and, And the cost of inexpensive term insurance is, is the cost of coffee for a couple weeks. It's so inexpensive to get good protection for somebody up until retirement. So I I do believe that term insurance is is a great way to go uh, to give you significant coverage um, up to retirement. Um, Now, there are other forms of insurance that have value if you're looking at legacy planning. Um, mm-hmm. that might have a cash value to them that might be greater, whole life, whatever it might be, but they have to be appropriate for the individual. Um, but, you know, and, 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 but in most cases, I find term is filling people's needs for people who have larger estates and they're looking at wanting to deal with tax issues, then, uh, you know, whole life might be more appropriate. It depends, again, upon the situation. Mm-hmm. So retirement planning. I mean, we, you've, you've talked already about the fact that social security is not something to depend upon. Um, and, and, but obviously there's more to it than just putting money in a piggy bank. Talk about some good 
options that may even offer some tax shelter benefits today, things that you think are really best practices in, in today's tax world uh, for retirement planning? Well, I think everybody's got to look at their work-sponsored plans and see what's available. Um, if there is a, a company plan and there is a match and a person's not taking advantage of that match, then there's something wrong. That's free money that needs to be taken advantage of every pay period. That's the first thing that needs to be addressed. Just because somebody's doing a match, they should not be happy with that. And most companies, when I talk about employer-sponsored plans, the most conventional that people think of is a 401k. Mm -hmm. And we see that in the private sector. Um, And again, this provides for tax-deferred savings and tax-deferred growth. And, uh, you know, and give you an example of how much you can save, uh, in 2015, the limits just went up. A person could be putting away up to $18,000 a year into a 401k. If they're under 50, if they're over 50, up to $24,000 oh, a wow. year. So there's some significant limits that can be utilized. Um, and they should be utilized in most cases. Um, though we also have 403b plans, which are utilized for nonprofits, um, and in education. Uh, you see those a lot in hospitals and healthcare as well. Uh, same limits apply, same benefits apply, uh, and, and uh, again, those should be utilized uh, if, if they're available. In governmental units, there we see 457 plans or deferred comp plans. People oftentimes have uh, pensions related to those those uh, jobs as well, um, and so they're, they're looked at as something to supplement their pensions. And in many cases, those people are not contributing to Social Security, as are folks in, in education. Mm. So taking part in those supplemental plans is, can be a really critical part um, those are, you know, your more traditional employer-sponsored plans. There's also simple IRAs. There are also traditional IRAs that people can be doing outside of work. Um, and all of these plans have Roth availability as well. And Roth investments, you know, give a person the ability to put money in post-tax um, and then have all that growth to be tax-free and um, for, the, for the duration of that, that account. Um, those, I think, should be, should be part of a, a, the puzzle as well. One of the great benefits of Roth plans that are in employer-sponsored plans, 401ks, Roth 403bs, things of that nature, Roth 457s, is that there are no income limits that apply to them. And Hmm. income limits do apply to Roth IRAs. Mm -hmm. A person who earns or a couple that earns over $193,000 a year cannot contribute to a Roth IRA. But if they earn that much or more and there is a Roth option available within their employer plan, they can utilize it. A lot of hmm. people don't realize that. So, so again, Roth, I think, is, is a great way to go as well. Doing both makes perfect sense um, to deal with, with, with uh, the combination thereof. You can also do some, some, uh, some investing in non-qualified deferred annuities. They, they provide a tax shelter, too. Um, and, and so that, that's another way to get a tax break. And then, but I also encourage people to do investing outside of retirement plans. Uh, brokerage portfolios are, are excellent thing to have just for tax diversification reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the co- a combination of, of Roth, brokerage, and traditional really is a great way to go. Well, and just to, to give a very simple example, it really does cost you less to save. In other words, uh, I put $1,000 a month away into a 401 account. The reality of it is I'm really only realizing about $750 out of my check. That seemed really amazing to me uh, just because of the, the difference in, in taxes I was paying. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. It, it does make uh, the, the bite of saving a little bit easier for people. And, and the way I look at it, uh, that's a $250 loan that the federal government's given to you uh, and, and the state government has given to you that you can then grow uh, and see what you can do with. And the, and the other portion of this is most people are looking at, at, at 
income in retirement that is going to be lower than their income pre-retirement. And consequently, when that money is withdrawn, then the tax uh, tax liability will be will be less. Be less. Now, the, the folks who are big proponents of Ross will say, no, that's not going to happen. But you know, we don't know where tax rates are going to go. That's why I say hedge your bets. And if you can do both, do both. Do both. So let's talk about a couple in their 30s. Uh, two people, they've just gotten together. Uh, they've fallen madly in love. They're thinking about uh, a life together, getting married. What type of conversation do you recommend they have today? You know, it's important that they have a conversation. Uh, you'd be amazed at how often I, I sit down with a couple or just or with an individual and, and, you know, we're talking about their situation and I inquire about what their spouse is doing and they have no clue whatsoever. Mm. Um, so the fact that you, you, just having a conversation would be is incredibly valuable. Um, the conversation, in, in my opinion, should be about, you know, some sort of shared goals. Um, you know, where are we going? Uh, you know, there's a lot of life to live, but having some vague vision, I think of it, I think makes, makes sense. Um, I think there should be some shared budgeting. There should be some discussion about that. One of the main things that couples fight about is money. That's a reality. Um, I, I believe there should be discretionary accounts for each individual, um, in my opinion, so that people can say that they can have money that they can spend without being beholden to somebody, you know, and they should have shared, shared accounts as well. Um, but when it comes to retirement planning, they need to talk about that stuff. They need to say, okay, how much are you saving? How much am I saving? Are we saving enough? Are we investing it properly? Um, sometimes people gravitate to the most cautious thing for, uh, because it gives them security and they're not recognizing that they're 30 plus years old and that they're, and they're investing more like they're 70 plus years Mm. old. So, um, you know, it's important that they, talk about that. And if they don't know what they're doing, then they should be reaching out to somebody who can maybe give more appropriate guidance or going to websites or doing whatever will help them uh, do what is appropriate for them. So how different is that conversation then for a couple who's in their 50s? You know, the 50s is very different. Um, when somebody gets into their 50s, it, it, you know, the, that timeline and the proximity of retirement is is can be daunting for folks. Um, but it, and, and checking to ensure that you are on track is critical and maintaining, uh, consistent checks is critical. Um, a lot of people worry about market risk and they want to ensure that their portfolio ratchets down in, uh, in, in risk during that time. That may very well be the case. However, sometimes people get excessively cautious and they have to recognize that one of the things they're trying to do is outpace inflation. Mm. And they're also going to grow that money, not up to retirement, but through retirement. And so, um, you know, gauging the amount of risk that should be addressed in the long term is an important element of it. Um, seeing if they're on track is an important element and making sure that they remain on track. Um, and, and then there are other, another big part of it is distribution planning. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're really starting to think about staging assets for distribution. Uh, you know, there's some there's some good instruments out there via via annuities that should be looked at, even if they're not even chosen. They should be looked at uh, as as a means of of creating uh, lifetime income, and so that's part of distribution planning, at least part of the discussion. And uh, you know, really just trying to lay things out so come that retirement date. Okay, we're going to have the income streams to turn on. Social Security is going to bring us X. We're going to use this Social Security plan in, in order to maximize things. And our assets are going to be allocated in this fashion. And keeping a good portion in cash for, you know, as you get closer and closer to re- retirement makes sense so that you can weather a storm, a bear market at the beginning of retirement, or it can be really devastating for folks. So recognizing how your money, where your money is set aside in order to deal with that is really critical. 
Well, and there's obviously a lot to this, particularly if this conversation, this planning process begins in your 30s and now you're in your 50s. It's got to be recorded somewhere. Do you recommend people actually write their plan down? If, if it's not in writing, it's not a plan. Um, uh, I will sometimes inquire from folks and say, do you have a plan? And they'll say, sure. And, and it's, it's in their head. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, with me personally, I, I, with folks, I prefer to do, you know, in-depth analytical plans that, that clearly quantify all the goals, all the objectives, all the needs, um, and all the wants so that, and, and then build inflation rates to everything that are appropriate that for that, you know, healthcare costs included within that. And that's a big thing that people need to address. Uh, and then there's a full, you know, uh, X-raying of, of investments in order to ensure that, that that things are optimized and managed appropriately. So all of that get, goes together in you know in a completed written plan, which then is revisited on an annual basis if somebody's in their fifties to say you know to see where things are. Um, but if that doesn't exist, in my opinion, you don't really have a plan. You have an idea, but not a plan. Mm-hmm. So it really does sound like it's a good idea to meet with a professional. What are some resources that you could recommend, some places for people to start looking for a a financial planner to help them? You know, um, if you're looking for somebody to help you, uh, people will oftentimes refer to friends for referrals. uh, And and, and I think that can work out, but that can also be sticky too. Um, You know, to me, it makes sense to, to meet with a couple. Um, and ask certain questions and, and inquire as to as to as to you know how it is that they they earn a living. Um, um, see what their method is, if mm-hmm. you will. You want to find the right fit, and so uh, I think interviewing or talking to a couple people is a good idea. You can go to the website for CFPs, um, you know, uh, certified financial planners. You're going to find references there. On our website at valak.com, you'll find a lot of information related to financial planning and, and ideas that some of the things that I've hit on here in addition, in addition to other things. Um, so, there, you know, there are tons of resources out there via the web. We're, we're inundated with so much information. Um, ultimately, uh, you know, I would say it's you're going to benefit from working with somebody. I think, in my opinion, as human beings, we our greatest risk when it comes to retirement planning is behavioral risk. Mm-hmm. It's not market risk. It's behavioral risk. We we hurt ourselves because we're human and we react emotionally to to the market and things, other things that are driving us and, and impacting us. And if you can have somebody who can function as a guide who really knows you, uh, then they can keep you from hurting yourself and keep you on track. And, uh, and, and, and I think that's really the greatest benefit of working with a financial advisor. Right. Finding someone who can really get to know you. I think that's important as well. Tell us again where people can go to learn more about Valak. You know, you can go to the Valak website at valak.com. Uh, that's V-A-L-I-C.com. Uh, if you're looking for any additional information, I can be reached via my, uh, my email, if uh, that's of any benefit, at vince.lamarca at valak.com. That's V-I-N-C-E dot L-A-M-A-R-C-A at valak.com. Perfect. We've been talking with Vince Lamarca from Valak about financial planning and most importantly about how to plan for a successful retirement. Really important information for LGBT folks these days. Vince, thanks for being with us tonight. Thank you. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Outbeat News In-Depth on KRCB-FM, Windsor, Santa Rosa. I'm Greg Moralia. Our next guest produced a video for the website I'mFromDriftwood.com, where he shared an experience and some thoughts he had about racism in the gay community. 
The video went viral, and it sparked discussions connected with a lot of the greater conversations going on in this country around race today. Here to share more about his experience is Moses Lassiter and the founder of I'mFromDriftwood.com, my good friend Nathan Mansky. Welcome to you both. Uh, thank you. Pleasure Thanks. to be here. Great to be here again. Well, Nathan, it's awesome to have you back on the show. You've been with us before. Uh, you are the creator of I'mFromDriftwood.com. And, and for our listeners who are not familiar with that site, tell us a little bit about it and where the idea came from. Sure. Uh, I'm from Driftwood is basically a online story archive. Uh, it's all first-person stories from LGBTQ people. Um, any story from their life involving them being queer. And uh, I was actually inspired by uh, the film Milk. Uh, there's a photograph of Harvey Milk in the San Francisco Pride March holding a sign that reads, I'm from Woodmere. And it made me think that, you know, it, that even Harvey Milk isn't from a so-called gay mecca you know, he's not from San Francisco. He's from this obscure town on Long Island. And myself, I'm living here in, in New York, uh, in Brooklyn, and but I'm not from here. I'm from a small town in Texas called Driftwood. And I thought that that would be a comforting thought to queer youth uh, all over the world, that you're not alone no matter who you are or where you are or what you're going through. So that's how it all came together, um, was uh, Harvey Milk was the inspiration. Awesome. How many years ago now did you start the site? It's coming up on six, actually. In March, it'll be six years that, that, that we launched. Yeah. Incredible. I think I had you on as one of my first guests on the show because it was a new site at that time. And you've amassed a great number of stories from all over the place. What's the total number now that you host? Uh, we have almost a thousand stories at this point. Incredible. Uh, you know, we, at this point, uh, last year, we started the weekly video story program. So every single Wednesday, we publish a new video story. Fantastic. Well, Moses, let's get to you because your story was one of the ones that I saw and so did the Huffington Post and a number of other LGBT uh, news organizations. And you've really sparked a discussion about racism within the LGBT community. Uh, but before we get to your story, tell us a little bit about you and where you grew up and, and your coming out. Uh, so uh, I, I grew up in Philadelphia. It's not a small town. It's not Driftwood. Uh, I don't know. I guess my my coming out story wasn't more wasn't more so like coming out. It was more like a personal acceptance of myself because you know I come from a religious family and my mother she was a minister mm -hmm. and you know dealing with religion in the back of your mind or being a daily part of your life when you're experiencing something that is completely contrary to what you have known growing up and what you were taught, it really changes the way that you view the world and view yourself. So for me, the, the struggle was, you know, accepting it for myself because I knew that when I decided to tell my family, you know, it wasn't convincing them that there was nothing wrong with me. It was like me having to convince God that there was nothing wrong with mm. me because that was their answer for everything. So for them, it's like, well, if God is okay with it, then we're okay with it. You know? So it was one of those things where that, that's what I knew the challenge was going to be. And, uh, you know, I, my mother actually, she called me up cause she kind of put two and two together one day. And it was really interesting because this entire thing was happening around the same time that I had just got to the point where, I was comfortable with it and I accepted myself for who I was. And when I, you know, told her that, yes, this is, this is me. She, you know, her reaction, she was really upset, but she had said that 
you know, the one thing that Jesus preaches is, preaches is love. And as many times as man has sinned, he has never turned his back on them. Mm-hmm. And it would be ungodly for her to turn her back on me. And I thought that was just really beautiful. And I didn't expect that. <laughs> sure. My father, you know, my, my father, actually, he didn't take it too well. Uh, he said some things to me that I will not repeat on the radio, but it was one of those things that uh, I got to the point where I wasn't too worried about what they were going to say because I was comfortable enough with myself to be who I was and not be ashamed of it. Uh-huh. So, yeah, at that point, it was just literally just uh, just saying, well, this is this is me. Take it or leave it. Now, how old and, were you um, at the time when you came out? Yeah, I actually, I, I consider myself a, a late bloomer because I came out uh, when I was 21, actually. So I think there's a belief that cultures of color have a particularly more challenging time accepting uh, non-heterosexuality from their kids or from, from anyone. Has that? Do you think that that is true? And if so, is that connected with religion, do you think? Or are there some other cultural uh, aspects so I would say that is uh, 100% true. I think that uh, the African-American community, I can only speak for the community that I know personally, uh, I would say that it's extremely, extremely challenging, and it's, it's, very, it's, so, it's very taboo. And I think uh, there are two factors that play into it. The first factor is religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of African-American communities are very religious, and I think the other factor is actually something that is, uh, you know, it, I feel like it comes from history. If you think about, uh, you know, after African-Americans were granted, you know, their rights and uh, liberties in this country, for so many years, you know, as, as slaves, their, their rights were taken away, their identity was taken away, and their morale was taken away. So when you have a community that now has rights, but no heritage and no culture and no identity, they are going to start looking for a way to, you know, identify themselves. And they're going to start looking to, you know, what makes us black? What makes us a community? What makes us, you know, what is the black experience? And one of the big things that they gathered around was the sense of family. You know, that's where they're like, you know, you're my brother, you're my sister. Mm-hmm. And who is the head of the family? The man. The man is the head of the household. So what was created was this idea of what it meant to be a man. And when you take that idea and it is, it becomes, you know, this theme that you have to be this strong man, you have to be, you know, this masculine man, you have to be this person that's the rock of the family. And then an entire new, new concept comes in that's, you know, that's the complete opposite of what they would think. That's where the conflict comes in, because for a lot of people, you know, they think that being gay is being less of a man. And that is where, in my opinion, I think the conflict comes into play because, you know, if that concept didn't exist of being, you know, less than a man, then I don't think that uh, homosexuality would be so much of a problem mm-hmm. within the community. It's just, it's just my opinion from just kind of like what I see and what I've experienced. Sure. Well, I think the type of sexism that you're talking about is certainly present in other communities. Uh, the Mexican culture, for example, also places a great value on masculinity over femininity. 
But I think generally the same is true throughout our own culture here in the United States as well. So let's get to the topic of your video, which is more about racism. Uh, there's so much conversation going on throughout the country today about racism and, you know, in light of what's happened in Ferguson, New York, San Francisco and other cities. Uh, talk about your experience with racism in the gay community. Um, aside, I would say the, the main thing that I've definitely seen is that people in the gay community tend to really have these ideas on, you know, the type of person that they want to be, the type of person that they want to date. They tend to compartmentalize a lot of things and create these groups and these divisions. But at the end of the day, um, you know, kind of like what I said in my, my video that, you know, I really feel that these things are what's tearing us apart. But I will say generally that I feel that, you know, racism that's in the gay community is no different than what's in the straight community. I would say that within the gay community, you would kind of expect uh, a little bit uh, more understanding because of the situation. You know, the, my, the one thing about being gay that's very interesting is that you can be born a minority and encounter lots of discrimination, you know. But mm -hmm. the thing about being born gay is that it instantly makes you the minority, whether you're white, black, Indian, doesn't matter what your race is. If you're born gay, you're instantly in a minority group and you become subject to certain experiences that a minority group would experience. In this case, you know, fights for equal rights and things like that. And you would just think that if you were a part of that, you would have a bit more of an open mind and not be so quick to label or discriminate. Nathan, what do you think? What's your experience been? Have you witnessed in your own experience, racism in the LGBT community? Um, you know, it's, it's not that I, I mean, I guess I could talk about a personal experience coming from, from myself. I mean, I, I look back to where I grew up, which was in a small town in Texas and, you know, predominantly white uh, neighborhood. And, you know, it's, it's, I think the, the important thing that I realized after being in New York for, you know, just over 11 years at this point, is that, you know, in a way, I've, everyone is racist because you can't, you, you're born into this country and this society and this world at this moment in time. And what I didn't realize when I was in Texas was that I was racist. I just didn't know it, you know, because mm -hmm. some, some people associate the word racist with hating people of color. And that's not, it's not as simple as that. So when I was in Texas, I was of the, the mind where I just didn't, I thought that I didn't that I wasn't attracted to people of color. And then it wasn't until I was in New York that I was surrounded by, you know, so many different types of people that I was like, why would I ever think that I'm not attracted to somebody based on their race? Like I'm, I'm surrounded by, I mean, I'm in, I'm in Brooklyn. I'm surrounded by, you know, Puerto Ricans and, and Dominicans and, and African Americans and all these different types of people. And, and I find many of them attractive. <laughs> it's, you know, it's not, but then I look back to, to how I thought when I was in Texas and I, there was no maliciousness to me thinking that I wasn't attracted to people of color, but I just didn't know, you know, so I, I kind of wrote that off as being, um, you know, oh, I'm not into black guys. But really what, I, what that was, was I haven't been exposed to different cultures and, and communities mm -hmm. for me to really make that uh, informed decision. 
you know, at this point, if I said that, that would definitely be racist <laughs> because, mm-hmm. um, you know, because I know better now, you know, after living in New York, I, I'm happy to say that I've, I feel like I've grown and, but I'm not finished. You know, I don't think anyone ever is. You're, you're constantly growing and learning and, and well, you, one would hope anyway. <laughs> sure. Sure. And I agree with a lot of what you said and, and my own experiences, I just have watched as I've learned about the gay community and seen how we really do relegate people into boxes. Uh, we're not very cohesive. You go into any bar and you'll see it's either a white bar or it's Latino night, or maybe it's uh, an African-American bar or it's a women's bar or a men's bar. I mean, we even discriminate by sexual position, right? <laughs> Tops are always better than bottoms. That just seems so odd to me when all of us are struggling in the very same way for our civil rights. Um, maybe it's, maybe it's too simplistic. I don't know. I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, the even, and this might be looking way into it, but, uh, you know, looking at the, the tops and bottoms thing. And I think it goes back to what Moses was talking about, even in the, the African-American community about how, you know, they've created this family structure where it's important for men to be manly. And in a way, I think that's also created because we also live in a sexist society. Right. So men are, are better than women. And, you know, so then you go back to the tops and bottoms and tops are more manly and bottoms are more womenly. So it's, you know, it's like tops are better, as you said, you know, because they're more manly because we put men on a higher pedestal than, than women. So that's why you don't want to be thought of as a bottom because it's, you know, it's like a woman and it's so subconscious and on such a deep seated level that you don't really think about it that way, but it's kind of the way that it, it comes out. Right, right. Well, we have the audio from the video Moses produced for I'm from Driftwood.com. So take a listen. I'm Nelson Moses Lassiter. I'm from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. When I came to terms with my sexuality, it was a, took a very long time. I used to just debate with myself back and forth, and I used to, you know, you know, I was actually angry that I was was gay, and I was angry at God for making me gay. It was just so many things that were just going through my mind. So uh, when I came to terms with everything, I wanted to go out and just meet guys and just make friends and kind of find, I guess, my place in the world, knowing that, you know, the world that I came from just wasn't the one for me. It wasn't accepting. And eventually I started meeting people and uh, making friends. And there was this uh, one time I was actually, you know, just chatting up this one guy and it was, the conversation was going really great. And there was definitely a really cool connection there. And, you know, there were a lot of, you know, similarities and I, you know, it's like, oh, would you want to grab a drink sometime? And he goes, oh, he's like, you're really, really sweet. You're really nice, but I don't date black guys. And he's just like, well, you know, I'm just, they're just not my type. And I'm like, well, what does that what does that mean is it because so you just don't like me because i'm black that's weird you know and he's just like it's okay though i have a friend who's into black guys and i was like what is what does that mean what does it mean to be into black guys you know i, I met this guy and you know his friend and i was like so what is it about black guys that you like he was like i like the way that they look and the way they talk the way they walk, the way they wear their pants down low. And I was like, none of this has anything to do with an actual black person. This is, you know, these are stereotypes and these are just, you know, preconceived notions and things that you hear. It wasn't that he, you know, liked black guys. He was into the idea 
or into, you know, it was more of like a object of affection or a fetish more than actually liking the person. And it was, it was at that moment when I realized that, wow, this is, this is another thing. And I was like, all right, what is this world that I'm slowly becoming a part of? Because it was just like, it was the complete opposite of everything that I was expecting. On the flip side, what made things even crazier was that, you know, my black friends were upset with me because I was dating someone that wasn't black. I had this one black friend who was, it was he was still in the closet. He was actually rather upset at the fact that um, I was, you know, dating uh, a white guy. You know, we were hanging out and uh, I was, you know, telling him about this guy and he was just like, why are you dating, you know, white people? You know that they don't like us. And I was like, what do you mean they don't like us? Because I'm dating someone who likes me a lot. So what's, what's, where, where are you getting at? And he goes, what, do you think you're too good for your own race? He basically said that I was a, a self-hater and that I didn't like black people or I didn't like who I was and I wanted to be someone else because of the fact that I wasn't dating you know, my own race. Like, these experiences happened less, like within like half a year. And it was just like all of these new things that were coming into sight at such a fast pace, at such a short time. I was just like, you know, we need a lot of work. We can't be seen as a group of people that wanna have a unified message of equality and no discrimination. If we ourselves are dividing ourselves, you know, through whatever methods, whether it's someone's, you know, feminine or whether someone is masculine or whether someone is black or whether someone is white. I mean, if we continue to create these own divisions within our own group, you know, we're no better than the ones that are discriminating against us. And it's extremely important because we have to change the way that we think. We have to change our minds within our own community, open our own minds, before we can expect other people to open their minds to us. You talked about some stereotypes and the, and the people that you talked with, their attractions were based upon stereotypes. Do you think that any of those stereotypes, though, are part of an attraction that we have for one another? Um, well, personally, I think that uh, those stereotypes are kind of like what I explained in the video. I really think that those stereotypes are more of a fetish than anything else because, you know, let's say, for example, if I, you know, for the sake of the conversation, let's say that I liked, let's say I was, let's say I was attracted to, you know, only white men or something. Let's just say that. And I said that I like them because they are surfers and they, you know, they have a funny way of dancing and, you know, I like the fact that they have like these, you know, they come from great families and they'll have, you know, a good upbringing and they don't have to worry about things because the future will be laid out for them. And I, for some reason, I think that's really, really attractive. And, you know, yeah, I also find you attractive, but those are some of the reasons why I like you. Now, if I said something like that and then I like asked you out on a date, would you consider any of those like general traits something that would be associated with you as a person? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's kind of like that. It's like if I had said that and that's what I thought you were and you were the complete opposite of all of that, the question is, 
am I attracted to you or this idea that has nothing to do with you? That idea is, to me, that's the problem. That is, you know, the stereotype. That is the, what I call the, the fetish. Because, you know, all of those things have nothing to do with who you are as a person. Right. You know, and they take those ideas and those fetishes and they attribute it to the stereotype. And believe it or not, that in itself is racism. You know, if you go on any general, you know, search engine and you type in, you know, racism, Google or Webster, they'll tell you that racism is the belief that all members of each race possess characteristics or abilities specific to that race. So characteristics, you know, or abilities specific to that race. So that idea of fetishizing or, you know, or assuming that someone is like that without even knowing them is being racist, Mm -hmm. according to the definition. Well, and history's got to play a little bit of this, or a little bit of a role in all of this. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that interracial relationships, specifically interracial marriage, were illegal in this country. Um, And just because we change the law doesn't mean that the stigma around uh, an interracial couple changed that same day. Do you think in the gay community today there's still a lingering stigma around interracial relationships? You know, I, to be honest, like, I don't necessarily, I can only go by the things that I've experienced. Mm-hmm. You know, I really think it comes down to uh, the individual and not the, the group as a whole. I don't know. Nathan, what do you think about that? I mean, I, th- I think it's, it's obviously come a long way. And, you know, sometimes it's anytime I notice an interracial couple, whether they're straight or gay, I like to look because I, I like looking at them because it. I love seeing them together and, and accepted in society. So, I, you know, to, I don't think we're beyond noticing it because I, I personally like seeing it. Right. Um, it's not commonplace. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I, I don't, it's hard for me to imagine that interracial couples are discriminated against. I think most of that would come from within a family, you know, so if Moses and I were dating, you know, if I took him home to my family, what would that be like? You know, I think that, discrimination would come from families, but not so much the broader society of like walking down a street. Yeah. That's, that's actually pretty much what happened with my first relationship. Actually, he was, you know, afraid to take me to his parents because he didn't know what they were going to think. And then his, 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 you know, his cousin a few months later, you know, explains why he was so, you know, standoffish about meeting his family. You know, the idea of taking, you know, a black home, a black guy home to his parents, you know, that's just something that, you know, his family, they're very, you know, old school, conservative. And I I just think that uh, for some people, you know, the old ways of thinking and old mindsets, you know, it gets to a point where you just can't change the way that they see the world or get them to open their minds up to something greater. It's just, uh, it's just a, a reality that, that we exist in. Yeah, well, unfortunately, I think you're very right. I mean, this kind of prejudice is doubly challenging for LGBT people. You know, anytime race and sexuality intersect within a conservative and intolerant situation like the family you mentioned. Well, we have just a couple of minutes left. Uh, Nathan, talk about what's in store for I'mFromDriftwood.com. Are you still looking for contributions? Always. Uh, Yeah, like I said earlier, we do a uh, weekly video story 
And we're always looking for new stories to film and different stories and experiences to share. Um, you know, even if we're, we're based here in New York, but we have videographers uh, around the country. So, um, you know, definitely let us know if you want to share a story. Uh, if you go to imfromdriftwood.com and then you click on share your story and then uh, there's a, a story form that you click on uh, to submit what your story is. And then we reach out to you and, and schedule a time to film and produce your story. And Moses will tell you it's, it's painless. <laughs> so, you, so you'll actually send someone out and do the videotaping and that person doesn't even have to worry about any of that. Yep. Yeah. We, uh, we got a, a wonderful grant last year that we can um, afford to pay videographers and editors. Um, so yeah. And we, we have a team of videographers and editors. Uh, we have one team in San Francisco, one in LA, uh, one in Chicago, one miraculously in a small town in West Virginia. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we have, we have some crews around and even if not, um, if you're somewhere where we don't have a current, uh, editing crew, uh, we can find one, you know? So, uh, that way it, I don't have to travel and get every story. We just find people who can do it in their location. Fantastic. What a great idea you had and, and how amazing it is that it has grown to, to this really, what I think is going to be an historical archive of, of, how our movement has evolved. I agree. Like the longer, now that we're coming up on six years, you know, looking back at all the stories we've collected, it's, it just shows how many stories there are to tell and, you know, how the stories and the conversation of the, the whole community has changed even in six years. So I'm looking forward to seeing how it changes even more in another 10 years or 20 years. Fantastic. We've been talking with Moses Lassiter and Nathan Mansky. Nathan is the creator of I'mFromDriftwood.com. Thank you, both of you, for the work that you're doing and for being on the show with us tonight. Thank you. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of our hour. My thanks to our guests tonight, Vince LaMarca from Valak and Nathan Mansky and Moses Lassiter. Don't forget to download the new KRCB app. You can listen to all of your favorite KRCB shows like Outbeat Radio on your mobile device from anywhere in the world with access to the internet. The app is free and available right now at the Apple and Android online app stores. Tune in next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB Radio. In the meantime, have a great week and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News In Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia exclusively for KRCB Radio. You can listen to our shows on demand on iTunes and on our website at OutbeatNews.com. And be sure to follow us all week long on our Facebook page and Twitter feed for the latest LGBT news from here in the North Bay and beyond. <laughs>